The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Our sermon lesson tonight is taken from John chapter 14. We'll look at verses 15 through 21. Here Jesus says the following. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. This advocate is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept the spirit of truth. The world can't handle the truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will even be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live, you also will live. And on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is God's word. My Christian friends, we are right now living in the age of the Spirit. The age of the Spirit. Uh, This is a thought that first actually dawned on me. I read a book a number of years ago from uh, a Christian author. He's kind of a provocative Christian author. His name is Frank Viola. For any of you who are Minnesota Twins fans, not that guy. Different different guy. Frank Viola uh, is a, a Christian author and speaker, and he wrote a book called From Eternity to Here. And one of the fascinating things about it, it was the first time I ever thought like this. He said, as a triune God, the triune God has interacted with mankind over the course of human history in three different stages and three different eras. So, for instance, uh, in the Old Testament, the primary person of the, the Godhood, of the Trinity, that you think of as interacting with mankind, it's not that the others weren't, but the primary person you think of interacting with them was the Father, And you get to the New Testament, and this is like the pinnacle and crescendo of human history, and the primary person you think of interacting with humanity then is the Son. It's not that the Holy Spirit wasn't there, it's not that God the Father wasn't, but the primary person that we clearly see interacting from God is the Son. However, in the modern era, in the post-Pentecost era, in the era of the church, the primary way that we should expect that God will interact with mankind, with his people today, is according to the Spirit. Hmm, what does that mean? Uh, It's interesting, but it's kind of hard for us to get our hands around that thought. Um, The idea of what does it mean that the Spirit interacts. uh, It's fascinating, if I do a little survey of the Christian landscape in America today, uh, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think it's a, a fair, fair generalization. You find a lot of Christian churches that talk a lot about being spiritual. So spiritual experiences, spiritual encounters, being slain with the Spirit, being on fire for the Spirit. And yet, those exact same churches, so far as I can tell, generally speaking, tend to sort of lack a coherent doctrinal backbone to them. Uh, A truth that they're willing to push all of their chips in on. 
On the other end of the spectrum, I think there's a lot of Christian churches out there uh, that talk a lot about truth and doctrine and knowing the right things, and they're sometimes a little afraid to talk about the Spirit. Some of you might have grown up in churches like this. Uh, I, you know, I, I went to Christian schools my entire life. I never once went to a school that wasn't a Christian school, and yet, I never once, to my recollection, I never once had the thought impressed upon me that the Spirit of God, if I'm a believer, the Spirit of God actually lives inside of me. That is an explosive and amazing fact, and I stumbled upon it in my 20s. I don't know that it was ever expressly taught to me. So my point is this. I think there's, you know, maybe a little bit of a false dichotomy out there. You have some churches that are talking a lot about spiritual stuff, but don't like to talk so much about doctrine. I think that that's cold and, and, and whatever else. And then there's a lot of churches out there that are talking about doctrine and knowing stuff, but they're a little afraid to ever reference the Spirit and the power of the Spirit moving in us and that sort of thing. And it shouldn't be that way because, as we just heard in our text here, the Spirit is a Spirit of truth. The Spirit and truth go hand in hand. And seemingly, the way that you would resolve this difference out there is to get into, delve into the doctrine of the Spirit himself. So that's what we're going to do here tonight, the doc, a brief survey of the doctrine of the Spirit as John uh, teaches us here tonight. One other thing I'd like to add before we fully get started, John 14 is where our lesson is from. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking pretty deeply in these chapters, John 14, 15, 16, 17. If I had to choose the toughest chapters in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to preach or teach out of, it would probably be John 14, 15, 16, 17. You get more things in there, sort of like what we just read, where people read it and then they're kind of like, what? Like if you, if you had to explain what you just read, what does that even mean? So what you got to do is you got to slow down and you just got to take a little bite-sized chunk and you got to savor it, okay? And the chunk that we're going to break down to tonight is this one. Just two, one and a half verses, really. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. This other advocate is the Spirit of truth. And Jesus says, you know him, for right now he lives with you, but eventually, soon, he's going to live inside of you. All right, what does that mean? Um, three questions I want to ask tonight to get to the bottom of this. Number one, Jesus promises another advocate. Who, what is an advocate? Let's just remind ourselves what that is. Uh, number two, if he's, if he's going to send us another advocate, that means there must be a first advocate. Who is the first advocate and what does he do? And if we have a first advocate, why on earth do we actually need another advocate? Okay? You follow me? I know it's a little complicated. I'll get there. I'll get there. What's an advocate? Who's the first advocate? And if we have a first advocate, why do we need another advocate? Okay? First of all, what's an advocate? Uh, some of you are in the habit of bringing your Bibles to church or, you know, Bible, church, Bible study, whatever. If you're looking this up right now in your, in your home personal Bible, um, and you read verse 16, you might not see the word advocate there. Okay? Depending on which translation you're using, some of us, we often use the NIV 2011. 
A lot of us grew up with the NIV 1984. Some of us grew up with the King James Version. Some of us like the New Living Translation. Some of us like other, all sorts of other translations that are good translations. But if you read them all on this verse, you would find that they say almost the exact same thing except when it comes to this word, advocate. In, the, in other translations, you'd find the word comforter or encourager or counselor. Or, or something strengthener, something along those lines. Now, what that tells you, when you read a bunch of different translations and they say the exact same basic thing except for one word, what that tells you is in the original language, which in the New Testament, that's Greek, there's a concept there that is so deep and so rich that there, just, there isn't an English word that just one for one comes across and tes- says it completely, Okay? Uh, so the, the Greek word that we have here is the word parakletos. Sometimes Bible commentators will just call it paraklete. Okay? Uh, that breaks down actually pretty easily in Greek. Parakletos. Para is a prefix that means to or towards. Uh, excuse me. A better way to translate that would be more like alongside. But, but looking towards something as you're alongside it. Uh, so it's a preposition. And kaleo, or kletos, is a Greek word that means to call out. So paraklete is to call to someone as you're alongside them. Okay? Now, we don't generally talk that way. I call out to somebody I'm alongside. Gener- that's why they use words like strengthen or encourage or comfort or counsel. Um, maybe the best example I can give of it is in high school, I ran track. And in the 400 meter, you go once around the track, and I always, I never wanted to finish. Like if you would have asked me, if somebody would have paused, put the pause button at 300 meters, would you like to finish the rest of this thing? No, I'd like to be drumming right now. Okay? And so what my track coach would do is he would stand on the inside of the track at 300 meters and he would call out to me, James, finish strong. James, run faster. James, unhitch the trailer. Something, something like that that encouraged me to get across the finish line, you know? He would, he would parakletos. He would call out to me to encourage me. Uh, in other words, a, a paraclete is somebody who it comes alongside you and is by you and is with you. The, the word advocate is, it's, it's the same concept, it's just Latin. Advocare is a Latin word. Ad means to or towards. And vocare, like vocal, means words, to speak words to somebody. An advocate is not somebody who goes in front of somebody else and says, hustle up, get over here already. An advocate is not somebody who stands behind somebody and says, come on, move, move already. An advocate is somebody, a paraclete is somebody who comes right alongside you, right next to you. They're with you and they're for you. And they speak truth to you that keeps you getting one foot ahead of the next in front of you. Okay? Now, an advocate is, in another sense, an advocate is somebody who is sort of a representative or substitute for you. Uh, Some of you, raise your hand if you have some kind of background in social work or law. Okay? Some of you. If, If so, you know the importance of an advocate. An advocate is somebody who speaks up for the defense of somebody else who can't make a defense on their own. Uh, An advocate is, in a sense, somebody who speaks to the powers that be on behalf of the powerless person. 
And everything that the advocate does, however much success that he or she has, gets credited to the person that they are advocating for. So, there's an advocate. Jesus says, I'm going to send you another advocate. Somebody who will come alongside you, somebody who will speak truth to you, that will keep you moving forward, and any success that they have is credited as your success. Got it? There's our advocate. Now, I've already touched on it a little bit. The question then is, if Jesus says you will have another advocate, who's the first advocate? And it's pretty clear from context. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. What's an orphan? An orphan is somebody who doesn't really have any legal representation. Uh, So, Jesus says, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. Jesus is saying, right now, I'm your representation. Okay? I will send you another advocate. And if there's any doubt that Jesus himself is referring to himself as the advocate, uh, the same guy who wrote our lesson here tonight, John, in 1 John 2, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Very clearly, Jesus is saying, who's the first advocate? He is. That's the easy one. The tougher question is, how is Jesus our advocate? And the hardest question is, if if we got Jesus as our advocate, why on earth would we need another advocate? Okay? So, how is Jesus our advocate first? Uh, Jesus is our advocate in the sense that he represents us objectively in the courtroom of God. Okay? So, in in the giant divine justice system of God over creation, if we were to stand in that court as, as God's created you know, creatures, would we pass the perfection test? No, of course not. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are, are guilty in some way, shape, or form. We're all in the exact same boat in that regard. And yet, we said earlier what an advocate is. We need an advocate, somebody who will defend us. And you know that an advocate... If their argument is compelling and solid and persuasive, then you are compelling and solid and persuasive. If your advocate is successful, then you are successful. So if Jesus is our first advocate in the courtroom of God, here's what he does. He's our defense lawyer. And he makes this case. He says, Your Honor, my Father, they're guilty. I know they're guilty, you know they're guilty, they know they're guilty, they've already confessed before you that they're guilty. Everybody in the whole world knows that they're guilty. But, Your Honor, because you have already accepted my payment for their debt upon the cross, you can't hold them accountable for their sins any longer. See, if you've already punished me and you are a just and holy judge, you can't collect twice on the exact same charges. Legally, because you're holy and just, you have to set them free from any accusations and from any condemnation. See, it's a perfectly airtight argument. Jesus appeals, as our defense lawyer, to the justice of a holy God and he sets us free. It's perfect, it's beautiful, it's undeserving, it's gracious. Okay? That's Jesus, our first advocate. You say, well, why do I need anything else? That's all I need, right? Wait a second. Why does Jesus say he's going to send another advocate? 
if Jesus has freed us from all of the charges that any demon or angel or God himself could ever possibly bring against us, any faults and failures of our own, why would we need another advocate? If we are clear before God and we are clear before the rest of the world, we should be fine, right? If you don't understand what you still need, then you still don't understand your own heart. Let me put it to you like this. A lot of us have made mistakes against somebody else where we've gone and we've told them we're sorry. We've repented to them. And they've said, I forgive you. And you know that God has forgiven you. And yet you still go back and go about your life and because of the mistake you made, you still don't really feel forgiven. They forgave you and God forgave you, but you still don't completely feel forgiven. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, I hear this all the time, no less than once a week, somebody will say, I just can't seem to forgive myself. At that point, something's wrong. It's not an external accusation, it's an internal accusation. It's not an objective threat out there against your well-being, it's an internal threat in here. What are you going to do with that? Let me, let me try to get real practical about this for a second. Some of you have lived your entire lives and you know as a fact that Jesus died to take all your sins away. And you get that. And yet you are still pressing in some area or aspect of your life to be absolutely perfect as though your entire life completely depended on it. And you can't take any criticism and you beat yourself up whenever you fail in that particular uh, area of your life and you constantly feel like a loser and you're always living in fear. Why is that? Because you're trying to be an advocate to your own heart. It's an internal threat. And you're failing. Have you noticed, um, this is the picture of ascension. I, I really want you to think a little bit more about Pentecost here. I, Pentecost, 50 days after Easter, we're going to celebrate this in, in, in a little while. Um, have you noticed how the disciples change after Pentecost? Prior to Pentecost, even after the resurrection, they're behind closed doors, locked, living in fear. After Pentecost, they're risking their lives and they're out there proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Prior to Pentecost, they're arguing with, with one another amongst, uh, amongst one another about which of them is the greatest. After Pentecost, they're going out there and they're telling everybody else about, not their own greatness, but about the greatness of Jesus Christ. What happened? The Spirit came down. The Spirit came down into them. You see, Jesus says the Spirit was always with them. He lives right now with you, but he will be in you. And that changed them. They had the Spirit of God in Jesus with them. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, I have to ascend into heaven so that I can send my spirit now into you. And it changed them drastically. Now, you want to hear the crazy thing? 
this is the thing that I missed for the majority of my life, and so I don't want you to miss it either here. Jesus said his spirit was within him, but when he ascended into heaven and at Pentecost, he sent his spirit not only into his disciples, but he also sent it into you. Do you understand how that changes your life? By the way, this is such a, a weird concept, uh, the, the power attached to knowing that God's own spirit lives inside of you. I want you to, I don't want you to just take my word for it because you've probably read some of these passages before, but I actually want to highlight this real quick. There's over a dozen passages in the New Testament that say exactly this. Uh, for instance, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price. He dwells inside you. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He lives inside you. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What he's saying there, I love this. He says, you can fill yourself with a bunch of different things and it changes the way you act. You can fill yourself with alcohol. It changes the way you act. Don't just fill yourself with alcohol to change the way you act. Fill yourself with the Holy Spirit and that will transform you. So, the Holy Spirit's job is he comes through word and sacrament and he gets inside of us and he changes us by defending us against the enemies of our heart. Um, Now, the world is constantly looking inside. I used to think, I used to tell people, don't look inside, only look at what's outside uh, because there's a lot of corrupt things going in your heart. When you look inside your own feelings, it's a little misguided, but it's not completely incorrect. Um, The problem is when you look inside there, what do you find? If the Holy Spirit lives there in abundance, that's a good navigational system. See, everybody's living for some kind of verdict. And you're living not only for a verdict from out there. I'll say it a couple times, it's okay. You're living not only, you're living not only for the verdict from out there, you know this, you're living for a verdict in here too. Uh, this, is, this is total celebrity mentality. Even if the whole world says I'm great, what if I hate myself and I can't look in the mirror? What if they all affirm me, but I look inside and I don't like who I see? So we're constantly looking inside for a verdict and we're saying, you know, am I attractive enough? Am I smart enough? Am I moral enough? Uh, do, I re- do I have to get into this school and get this degree uh, and get these certain credentials on my business card in order to feel like I'm really a worthwhile person? Is that what I really need in order to love myself? Do I have to drive this car? Do I have to fit into this size dress in order to be an acceptable person? We're constantly looking inward. The problem, again, is not so much just the looking inward. The problem is that the vast majority of the world, when they look inward to their feelings, they're finding an empty vacuum of their just natural heart in an absent of the spirit-breathed word. And so what they hear then is they hear a verdict and it's this incessant, trembling murmur of not good enough. The problem is that people aren't fully, fully filled with the spirit-given word. See, the word and the sacrament are the things that God does. Everybody has a spirit, but not everybody has the spirit. And the word and the sacrament are the things that God uses to align your spirit 
with the Spirit. He's the internal advocate. Let me show you how this works real quick. The best example I can think of for this is in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Constantly, Paul's saying in the New Testament, God did not give you a spirit of timidity. He gives you his spirit so you be courageous. Don't live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by this spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit. It testifies to our spirit that we are God's children. Here's what he's saying. Your hearts by nature are filled with fears and doubts and regrets. And the spirit comes in very calmly, very collectedly, like a really good defense lawyer, just like Jesus. And the spirit comes in and he says, shh, quiet. You don't get to feel that way about yourself anymore. You don't get to be scared anymore. You don't get to loathe or resent yourself anymore because you don't belong to you. Jesus bought your life. He deemed you worth it. He deemed you adequate and valuable. No offense, your opinion of you doesn't count anymore. God already said you're valuable. He bought your life. He gives you purpose. He drives your meaning. See, you, the, the thing is, you can't, you can't presume to love Christ and then turn around and hate on yourself. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Now, the Holy Spirit defends you against the enemies of your own heart, not by pointing you to him. The Holy Spirit never points to himself. The Holy Spirit also, which, by the way, Eastern theology is to look to the Spirit, the spiritual realm. Western secularism is to look inside yourself in a naturalistic sense. Both of those are wrong. You can look inside if you are filled with the Spirit who points you to Christ. The Holy Spirit is a flashlight that is constantly pointing you at the work of Christ and that's how he makes you okay with yourself. Let me just give you a couple quick examples of this. Um, let's say you say, by the way, I know you think like this. This might not be your example, but I know you think like this. You think, yeah, I know I'm saved and my eternity in heaven is secure, but that boy doesn't like me. The Holy Spirit has to come up alongside you and say, what are you, insane? What difference does it make what a pimply-faced, adolescent, sinful boy thinks of you when the God of the universe says that you are beautiful in Christ? He brings you to the logic of the gospel. Uh, you say, well, I've grown up. I'm beyond all that stuff now. I know I'm saved, but my career trajectory just isn't what I would like it to be at this point, and that brings me down day after day. And how, how impressed do you think God is by your master's degree and your financial portfolio and your uh, last year's profit margins and next year's growth potential? This is the God who spoke the universe into existence simply by saying, let there be, and he's adopted you into his family. And he says, just like me, I now want you to be continuously less impressed by the accomplishments of this world. 
Um, and you say, well, okay, well, those things, are, those things are just superficial. I've got real problems, bigger problems, much more deep problems. Well, the gospel is all about remedying big problems. Um, you say, okay, uh, I know I'm saved for all eternity, but this tragedy has entered into my life, and I don't think I will ever find happiness again. Um, the Spirit comes in. Uh, I, there's a quote, and I could not find it this past week. It's a great quote. Some of you have heard this lady before. Her name is uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She speaks on Christian radio all the time. She's an incredible speaker. She's confined to a wheelchair because she's a quadriplegic. When she was young, she had a diving accident, broke her neck, uh, and she's, she's in a wheelchair, but she goes around and gives inspirational Christian speeches about the resurrection. What? How's she giving her inspirational speeches? Because she's talking about, I, I try to bring out a quote from her every Easter, because uh, she talks about, you know what, on the great end resurrection day, in my resurrected body, you know what I'm going to do? This is a woman speaking from a wheelchair. I am going to run, and I'm going to jump, and I'm going to dance. You know what she's doing? It's really what the Spirit's doing. The Spirit is advocating for her about Jesus to the fears and the despair of her own heart. If our hearts condemn us, we read earlier, the Spirit is greater than our hearts. The Holy Spirit rationalizes the gospel against your own doubts because by nature we think, oh, look what I've done. Uh, God can't love me. God has abandoned me. I'm not good enough. And the Holy Spirit comes in like a big, you know, bucket of living cold water, splashes it in our face and sobers us up to the reality of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more thought. There was a, a famous Baptist preacher named Charles Haddon Robinson. Years ago, he had a quote, and I never understood it until I studied this text. Uh, he said, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Little faith will take your soul to heaven. I got that. But great faith will bring heaven down into your soul. That never made sense to me until I studied this. Heaven is the place where people see Christ for who he really is. True God. And they live and they feel and they think and they act accordingly. When the Holy Spirit advocates to my troubled little heart about the truths of Jesus, and he says, remember the love and the mercy and the sacrifice at his cross. Remember the power and the triumph at his empty tomb. Remember your glorious and inevitable future as you see him ascend. A heavenly calm starts to settle down into my little weak heart because the Holy Spirit speaks and helps me see Jesus for who he really is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come tonight confessing that many of us have lived our lives knowing that you died to take all our sins away, knowing that you've prepared a place in heaven for us, and yet we live our days scared and lonely and afraid and fearful behind locked doors. We need the Spirit to come into our hearts. We need to have our hearts penetrated by the Spirit who works through the means of grace, word and sacrament, so that we believe what you've already told us, maybe what we've already memorized, but we need to believe it more and more and more. 
so that our troubled hearts can calm down, so that we can have a gospel relaxation and a gospel energy by which we proclaim who you are and what you've done for us fearlessly and courageously. Help us to do exactly that. We pray this in your name. Amen.